I'm Chance Dorlin, and welcome to This Week Korea, an Anything Goes panel discussion program featuring the opinions of expats and, from time to time, Korean nationals on some of the biggest yet often underreported stories from the last week. Brought to you, of course, by KoreaFM.net. On today's show, he received his doctoral degree from UC Berkeley's Department of Comparative Ethnic Studies and also started the first street fashion blog in South Korea back in 2006. He's currently a professor at the Busan University of Foreign Studies, teaching Korean studies, and also he is the director of the university's International Education Center and the Critical Studies program there as well. And he also moonlights over at Korea University, where he's the chair of the fashion division of the World Association for Hallyu Studies. Michael Hurt, thank you for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Originally from Dresden, Germany, he studied Southeast Asian studies and has worked as a journalist in Berlin, Beijing, Nairobi, Jakarta, and now Seoul. He's also worked for the Berliner Morgan Post and Die Welt and currently writes for magazines such as Wired and Rolling Stone while working on a book about South Korea. Soren Kittle, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. And he's a long-term Canadian permanent resident of Seoul, an urban explorer who moved to Korea all the way back in 2003 and has now worked everywhere, including a patent office, a government propaganda agency, and SKKU. For over 10 years, he has self-published The Punk Zine Broke in Korea, and he shares photos of Korea's live music scene, the less accessible aspects of Seoul's urban environment, and also pictures of his cats on his photo blog, DehanMeanDecline.com. John Dunbar, the legend, thank you for joining us. Thanks. I don't think I'm as, any more legendary than the other two guys, for sure. <laughs> well, when I say legend, we'll, we'll get to this a little later in the show. I'm very jealous of your permanent residency, which we might talk about later on. Oh, yes. And I'm Chance Dorland, an American radio journalist, former Peace Corps volunteer, and now Yonsei University Korean Studies master's student living and working here in Seoul. I'm also the creator of KoreaFM.net, an online radio station that features independent musicians and podcasters from the Korean Peninsula. And one of the original programs that we do is This Week Korea. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Let's... Uh, Move along with this sausage fest today. <laughs> Our first topic, we're talking about something that even if you're not part of this industry, it's something that affects you because you're probably going to have friends who are. And of course, it's a big deal here in Korea. And that's, of course, English language, the teachers. Well, the number of native English teachers has decreased this year, but it's part of this larger trend that we've been seeing for quite some time as the number of native English teachers in South Korean public schools has been going down since at least 2011. The Korea Times reports since government subsidies for English teachers stopped in 2005, schools have had difficulty paying for current or hiring new teachers as free school meals and free education at preschools have been given priority funding. Now, currently, of the roughly 11,500 elementary, middle, and high schools nationwide, approximately 59% now have native English teachers, which is 7.5% less than last year and a more than 25% drop from 2011 when native English teachers were present at nearly 85% of all public schools in South Korea. So in addition to less teachers, we're also seeing that the number of students per native English teacher has risen to 1,144 students this year, an increase of more than 400 since 2011. So less teachers and more students for all the teachers that still have jobs in the public sector. So, you know, once again, if you're a teacher or if you want to come to Korea to teach English, this might be a bad thing. But, you know, in my opinion, Koreans haven't been getting their money's worth in English education for a very long time. 
Um, just a few years ago, you could be hired to work as an English teacher in public school here without um, a college degree related to education. You could just have any college degree and you could have no teaching experience. And frankly speaking, after living here for more than two years, it does feel like there are just a little too many English teachers <laughs> And it would be better to have more skilled teachers in public schools, people with education backgrounds, as well as more college professors in Korea, like Michael Hurt, who's joining us today on the panel. Also, as more and more Koreans learn English, what about the idea of Koreans working in public schools to teach English to Korean students instead of hiring native uh, speakers? This is something that's come up in the news and something that's changing a little bit here in Korea. You know, do you need a native speaker to learn English in elementary, middle, or high school, or even at the college level? Those are just some of the questions I'd like to discuss regarding this topic. Um, I know we have a professor, we have a journalist, and we have someone who, as I mentioned, has done about everything. So, uh, you know, let's just start off the conversation. What do we think about this general decline that is continuing this year, but as I mentioned, has been going on for quite some time here in the English education you know, division of South Korea? Well, I mean... I think it's sort of like the price of gold. Um, if you look at things in the big picture, we know which direction this is going to go. I mean, but, you know, th there are small fluctuations and changes as politics change, as policies change. But I think the thing is, English, the desire to learn English as kind of a symbol of the global has been going in the same direction for decades. And... uh you know, I, I came in with the first group of English teachers um, in, um, not the first, but the first group of formally recognized English teachers uh, as a Fulbright English teaching assistant, ETA. Um, and that started in 1992 after the Peace Corps um, was officially ended in the 80s and the Korean government wanted to continue with that um, because Korea was too developed. And the thing that the Peace Corps volunteers primarily did here in Korea was teach English. And you were a Peace Corps volunteer, apparently, Chance. Uh, very much, unfortunately. Yeah, I wasted two years of my life in the horrible Peace Corps. But yeah, go on, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this English craze has, I think, defined and driven everything. You know, and um, it's even, I think, you know, even people who don't teach English, like myself anymore, um, are still, you know, it's affected by the fact I'm here because Korean universities want, you know, native English speakers teaching other things. And, um, you know, that is not going to change. Right now, because of politics and whatnot, there are less slots for native English teachers, you know, because of changes in the, um, the Korean programs, the um, Coretta, well, not the Coretta, what's the uh, new name for the programs now epic gepic epic gepic um there's also talk which is a short term um program for students who are still in college or have just recently finished right and uh i think those those kind of programs i mean they're cutting funding for this one and that one and new ones are created that's not going to change so right now i think we're in the middle of a short downturn in the number of uh number of positions but yeah i mean that's up to you know the new president comes in you know in another term they have a new policy we're going to greatly increase the number of english teachers because that's a political issue here and um access to this kind of education is a big political issue but i think that that this is going to like continue to drive 
um, all education here in the background. And um, yeah, I, th- I think unless there's a significantly huge policy change, like um, Lee Myung-bak proposed a long time ago, which he never followed through on, his whole thing was to turn all Korean universities into, into nat- like um, all Korean universities had to speak English as their main language. That was an initial proposal he had. Everyone, everyone pushed back against it, and he kind of gave up. But it's still an important issue that you know could change with the next president, the next policy shift. But right now, there's a there's a you know downshift in the number of positions. But do do you guys agree? Do you think that's more of a, a policy shift? I know when I introduced this topic, I talk about you know funding being a problem, but. Michael, you talked about how, you know, I'm a, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. One of the reasons I talk about how it was a waste of two years of my life is because I worked my ass off in the Peace Corps and I didn't accomplish a damn thing because the school that I was at didn't want me there and they didn't utilize my free services. And my opinion is that, yes, funding's going down and it is a political game that's being played. But I think Koreans are finally realizing that they're not getting the dollar value that they've been investing for years on these foreign teachers. I mean, that's just my opinion. John Soren, what do you guys think? Yeah, same, I same, really same, agree same. with that. Yeah. Basically, I mean, Korean people aren't getting their money's worth, but what is it that most Korean people study English for? Are they trying to become fluent, or are they just trying to get higher test scores so that they can get promotions and raises at work, uh, at least at, at an adult level? Um, like, do they... We're here to teach them how to be to sound fluent and natural, but... It, within Korean society, there's no real gauge for how well that's happening. So um, a lot of Korean people might invest time into you know learning how to sound natural and then get a worse TOEIC score than somebody who doesn't really speak a word of English properly. Yeah, because like you just mentioned, it's all about testing. So you could sound great, but if someone has a better test score than you, it might not matter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so that's the problem. I mean, uh, what we're offering is it can be disruptive at times. And uh, that can be, you know, a bad thing for businesses, for even for the general education system on a major level. It would be great to see some major changes uh, put in place, but that's not something that's going to happen through an English teacher who's uh, got a degree in geology and is making 2.1 million a month. No offense to those people who do have those jobs. Because that's quite a few people, yeah. (laughs) So yeah. you're, you're German here. You're, you're not teaching language, but obviously you've met probably quite a few people who are. What's your, what's your you know, glimpse of what's going on right now? So I've been recently doing a story uh, on Songdo, like this, this uh, smart city that is, that is outside Incheon. Has, uh, um, and one of their major, um, uh, one, one big major part of the idea of creating Songdo was, was a, a prim- premium education, actually. So they, uh, they actually hired a lot of English teachers um, but only English teachers that are certified, that are actually uh, like the, that have been educated as teachers uh, in their in their home country, and I think they're actually going to the right direction. And and from what I've learned in the past two years in Korea, I think there's too many teachers that are not certified and that are just being hired for all the wrong reasons, namely uh, to to show off on pictures and to look look we got a we got a foreign teacher. And I think, like to teach four-year-olds uh, uh, English, you don't you don't have to be even a native speaker um, uh, or five-year-olds. I think it's it's. And I, I also think you don't have to be certified in anything. I mean, it's not that. I mean, not to you know, it's not that difficult of a job. 
Yeah, true. But I but but I think like the the number is going to decrease uh, more and more, and like maybe maybe to a to a more healthy level where the teachers that are hired are also needed, as 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 you have been saying, uh, chance that uh, that that they don't really get their money's worth. And I've also talked to teachers who, especially in the starting winter or fall, uh, uh, they receive less and less students in their in their talking classes because uh, they they have to uh, they have to prepare other exams. And so, but they still have to be there at the office. So they actually like they like they are reading this this big books or like they they're doing an online course in 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 some some other university just to just to you know pass the time because I'm and and they are fully paid as well. Yeah, desk warming. You, you, exactly. The, the kids exactly. are on vacation or something, but you still have to go sit or you don't have a class in the afternoon, so you just sit there and watch YouTube videos. This is kind of like a rite of passage. Um, for working in Korea in the English education industry, and, and you're very correct to point out that you know why why does that exist? But it's just become so accepted. Exactly, exactly, and that's why like maybe maybe this this number is, is going going to go down as well, and like yeah, maybe just uh, being at a at a healthy level at one point. The the thing that's interesting here is that you know all the statistics that I talked about were for the public sector. We're used to see people, as you mentioned, Michael, the Epic program um, and Gepic is the same thing, but in a different area. And you would have people in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. And now the people that I know that are Epic teachers are all elementary, and all the people who were here four or five years ago teaching in a public school have more or less gone to a hogwan, the private academy, or they're teaching at a public school, but they're in an after-school program that's run by like a private company, which is kind of like the best job you can get now. That's like the new epic position because all those jobs in middle school and high school are gone. As these trends continue, as, as I don't think anything is going to change too much in the next couple of years at least, and we're going to have less teachers in the public sphere, what's going to be the new norm then? Are we going to see more people like you, Michael, who are teaching at the college level, but not in English? Are you going to see people in the professional area? Or are we going to see just a mass rush of people to the hogwans and they'll just hire any native speaker and pay them about 2 million won? It's not going to be a um, single kind of change. But I think the big mutated albino monster elephant in the room is the fact that we're in the middle of an English industrial complex where the needs of the needs of the of the people, as it were, are dictated by the private sector. And uh, I think you're right to some extent. Koreans in general are having this conversation about dissatisfaction with certain aspects of English education, and I think a lot of those Koreans are figuring out that this English industrial complex isn't interested in actually teaching English. Uh, for example, if you look at different aspects of things, right, we have, you know, one person pointed out that we talked about, you know, a lot of people hired as window dressing for Korea's kind of global fetish, right, for everything has to be global, international program, and you have to have a foreigner, preferably with a white face, um, who's smiling and makes gives that veneer of internationality. Um sure. And uh, I think the private sector, though, has shifted a lot of things um, to the extent that even socially, being an English teacher, I think this is a big thing to mention. So, you know, when I first came here, being an English teacher in a, part, in a public school, you, you know, you weren't in a hagwon. You were in a public school. And a public school teacher, even if you were hired in on some weird program or whatever from a Korean perspective, meant you were a teacher, meant you had deserved some kind of respect oh yeah oh yeah now, nowadays that doesn't mean anything because 
it's not just with foreigners, but um, the private sector seriously changed the nature of the teacher in Korean society. Nowadays, Korean public school teachers get no respect from students because they know that learning doesn't actually happen there. If you want to learn English or get into high school or you know whatever, math, science, you don't actually get higher scores on the sunung, the uh, college entrance exam, from your work in school. You get it in the hagwon. Everybody knows that now. So, you know, they, they say in um, Korean schools, in, in the hagwon, you sleep at school, you study, and you come here. We'll prepare you for the test. And that's the same thing in English. So um, I think the struggles that the, um, that the public school sector, for example, less jobs like in Gepic, Epic, those kind of places, you mentioned talk, I think it's a function of the fact that, that the um, public sector isn't where English teaching is at anymore, although that's offered the most stable and best jobs. But that's shifting now, as you just mentioned, you know, into the private sector as well. The days when getting your, you know, your, your epic or gepic position with, you know, salaried position, and that would be your study-based job. You might pick up a few side jobs here and there. Those days are coming to an end these days. But, yeah, I think that's all because of the private sector and how the emphasis is shifting over there. John, one final thing I, I want to ask. You've been here for, for yep. so long, and you, as you mentioned, I love that. You, you know, you've worked about everywhere. When you see people, friends, Canadians, Americans, Brits, you know, anywhere that they're coming from, and they decide to call it quits here in Korea, um, but they still want to teach English, are they going places in Asia, or have you been noticing a lot of people going to the Middle East? I've been hearing about people going yes. to the Middle East. Uh, I know a few people who have gone to Turkey in particular. I've heard about people going to Saudi Arabia and places like that. A lot of people just go back to their home countries uh, where there is also an ESL industry still. Uh, some of them actually even get into uh, regular primary school. But uh, quite a lot of people just move back to Korea eventually. You're here long enough, you lose all your friends because they move away. You're here longer, they come back. Yeah, I was one of those. <laughs> I was here, I left, I went to Columbia with the Peace Corps and... I came crawling back as quick as I could. So Yeah, that's one reason I haven't left. Yeah, well, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm very jealous of you and your permanent residency. Uh, so, yeah, good discussion. I, I agree basically with everything that was said. It's changing. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that it's, it's such a bad thing that it's changing. I think it does need to reform a little bit. But um, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. English will still be a big deal in Korea. Um, for the points that you just talked about, Michael, you know, you got to get good grades on, on the Sunung. Um, before we move on to our next topic, Michael, um, could you talk a little bit about what you're doing here? You're, you're a very highly educated professor, but you're also known as this very prolific photographer, street photographer, fashion photographer. Could you talk a little bit um, maybe about your photography and what you do in Busan? Oh, okay. My original reason for coming here in 94 was because, uh, you know, I graduated from college and I I wanted to see what Korea was like, so I came on the Fulbright English Teaching Assistantship and I stayed in Cheju for two years, went to grad school, and I came back to do my dissertation in 2002 on another Fulbright research grant, and um, I didn't do my dissertation um, during that time. I just started doing photography, and I kept going that direction 2002, the next 10 years, until pretty much now, not finishing my dissertation. And my dissertation, I finally finished up last year. And uh, with the PhD in hand, I was able to apply for more academic positions. Photography-wise, do mostly street photography and um, 
it sort of it sort of went into street fashion photography direction as I think people became more interested in that. Um, and I try to look at social aspects of society, social changes. And I got more interested in gender as things went along because that's more fun. And uh, there's a lot more things to say. And there's a lot to say in Korean society if you're interested in gender and use photography. So them- thematically, I'm interested in what women are wearing primarily, how, how that says something about how people think differently about consumption and gender. And I brought that into, as I finished the dissertation, I brought this into what I call visual sociology, which is a very small subset of sociology and uh, something I think worth exploring in Korea. Yeah, that's something we've talked about here on the program. And, and as I've just started my Korean studies master's at Yonsei, I'm taking a gender, a gender class. Um, it's something very, very interesting in general, you know, studying gender around the world. But here in Korea with such an emerging economy and, con- and Confucianism and all these other things pushing back on each other. It's just so fascinating, uh, the different things that you can read about or even just see by walking around. So, no, yeah, I absolutely as well. I, I kind of have a similar situation to you. Come to Korea, get interested, and then decide to study more about Korea. So two peas in a pod, you and I, Michael. Yeah. Uh, moving along here to our, our second topic. This one's a little bit different than our first one, a little bit more controversial, but um, I think we can still have a good discussion about it. Um, you know, Donald Trump in the U.S. is getting most of the spotlight um, because of just this giant clown car that is the GOP presidential candidates. He's the one that's been able to get his face out there for obvious reasons. But we're also seeing headlines from time to time from other people, including recently Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida, who seems to have made the hole he dug for himself even deeper for a lot of people when he said that his use of the term anchor babies was, quote, frankly, more related to Asian people. And now many Korean groups are quite upset about this, but We'll get to that after a little bit of uh, a background about this. So last month, Governor Bush was in Texas near the U.S.-Mexico border. He defended his use of the term anchor baby to describe children born on U.S. soil to parents who came into the country illegally. He got some flack about that, then did some damage control so that he was actually talking about immigrants rather than people who come across the U.S.-Mexico border, saying that, quote, it's more related to Asian people coming into our country, having children, and that organized efforts taking advantage of a noble concept which is birthright citizenship. So in America, if you're born in America, even if your parents are illegal for any reason, you are an American citizen. Now, Korean groups in the U.S. are upset about these comments, and I'll actually be interviewing New York State Assemblyman Ron Kim later this week for a report I'm preparing uh, uh, for uh, the radio station that I work for because he attended an event that was organized by the Korean American Civic Empowerment Group, as well as some other elected officials who were also there, denouncing this term of anchor baby Um, by Jeb Bush, referencing Asians and demanding an official apology from the former Florida governor. The interesting problem here is that while Governor Bush could have definitely worded his comments in a less offensive way, this is a very real thing. It happens. You know, just recently in March, the New York Times reported that federal agents raided three businesses in Southern California that arranged for pregnant Chinese women to come to the U.S. on a tourist visa, give birth, and then obtain birth certificates and U.S. passports for their children. CNN also reported back in 2013 on the thriving birth tourism business, and even Korean media are talking about the fact that some Koreans are doing this as well. Also in 2013, the Korea Times reported that privileged Korean moms-to-be weren't shopping for toys, but for U.S. citizenship, as it only cost at that time somewhere around 50,000 U.S. dollars, and you know, had to take a three-month trip to the U.S. to get your child a U.S. passport. 
which actually ended up causing the city of Los Angeles to go after these so-called maternity hotels as LA is the top delivery destination among pregnant Korean women. Also, just a little bit more, back in 2011, the Korea Herald reported that the Korean government was actually changing its laws to deal with what they also called anchor babies from birth tourists who are possibly trying to evade Korea's mandatory military draft for their children, and that more than 10,000 Korean anchor babies are born in major U.S. cities every year. And in fact, even this nut rage woman that has been making all the headlines, this executive, she got flack here in Korea after giving birth to twin sons in Hawaii who will now not have to serve in the ROK military. So since this is a very real thing going on from Asian countries, you know, as I just pointed out from Korean families, do these groups really need an apology from Jeb Bush? Once again, he could have worded it better, but it's a real thing. Well, I think that the thing to keep track of is this is a big political clusterfuck situation because, you know, you've got this complex situation on both sides of the Pacific, like in the States, the States right now is going through this, you know, one of its many little periods, freakouts over immigration. Um, and of course, it always, as it always has in the United States, it always takes on this kind of racist, this, this racist tone in order to um, become a bigger issue in politics. I mean, Trump is talking about building, you know, his wall and, um, you know, you know, the Republicans have to weigh in on this. And uh, the problem is Mexican immigration or Mexican illegal movement of peoples is a huge issue. And if you bring in the word Mexican and you brown the issue, of course, it's going to become, you know, a hotter issue and more powerful. And there are more of the, that voting voting block, so that yeah. makes sense. That's yeah. And the thing is, you you can you can bring up that kind of old fashioned uh, racist uh, mode of talking, um, and it's useful in in an American election. But the problem is, you've got a very powerful Latino block of voters, so you've got to kind of cover yourself. You know, yeah, I'm talking about immigration. I'm trying to make people angry, but I'm not being racist, right? And uh, the, the perfect thing to do is to throw the Asians under the bus. As you said, I'm not talking about brown people. I'm not talking about Mexicans. I'm talking about Asians, actually. And then bringing up something that's actually very real, which, you know, if the reporters go into it and, you know, people start doing the research, there is a there are huge industries um, of... You know, China and Korea, especially, I, I know about Korea the best because for a long time I've known that, you know, it's, it's been well known that there are services you can pay money, they can set you up in the States, you know, hotel, the whole nine, which hospitals to have your kid have citizenship. Because in Korea, that's a huge concern of the elite. Because if you want your, your son not to have to go to the military, um, then you have your son overseas in the States, they're American citizen, and they have all these privileges in Korean society, which is why the Koreans are very concerned about that um, in terms of actually changing policies here. The, the, the you know, Korean Americans in the States feeling mortally wounded and insulted because now they're in the political forefront in a negative way, I think that's what they're demanding an apology about. But the the content of the accusation that there is this sort of, um, you know, what actual people who study this call chain migration in, in a way. Chain migration is, if you look into the 
history of Korean immigration, how a lot of Korean Americans eventually became Korean American, how Korean folks from Korea became American, chain migration it has played a huge role. You can't deny that. And people don't like to talk about the dirty details, but it's all true. Well, I uh, personally, I'm pretty certain we don't have that same kind of law in Canada. Uh, I, I don't even quite understand why it would exist in America, unless this is dating back to the 1700s when they just wanted more uh, Europeans to come there and actually settle in America. Uh, so uh, personally, I, I don't really understand it. It sounds like it's a little too gimmicky to, to work properly as a law. I, I don't know how uh, tourism should be handled, like tourist visas for pregnant women, but uh, it seems like this is something that should be easily identified. And, you know, the, there must be a rational reaction to it rather than, you know, a weird loophole and then, you know, racist politics re uh, resulting. In Germany, it's actually like one, one parent has to have the German citizenship in order, in order to, uh, to grant the citizenship to the, to the child. Um, and I think most, most European states actually have that. So, so the, the, um, the tourism in that respect is kind of, kind of prevented. What, what baffled me really when I, when I read this and, uh, and I wasn't really, uh, I, I didn't really know about this before was that, um, that it's the Korean middle class. Like I, I would have thought, you know, people who, who travel abroad and, and do this, uh, uh, in order to gain the European citizenship for their children, I thought they, you know, they have some financial incentive for that, or, or actually, like as the as the horrible term anchor baby suggests, like that they want to stay in the U.S. and and use the baby as an anchor. But it's entirely not true in this case, and this is what I what I think is 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 it's basically it feels to me it's more of a compliment to the U.S. actually, like to the to the system, and because they they are not they are not even asking for much. They are they are not they they do not want to, uh, you know, want to want to use some some social welfare system or or buy into any of that. They basically uh, they want to give their children a better a better chance in the future, and they want to avoid the military service for their for their sons, which is totally logical, and it's uh, especially for a country for a country that is that is going global so much as, as Korea it is at the moment. So yeah, I, I see it more as a compliment, actually, to the U.S. system. Well, it's logical to try to avoid military service for your kids, but it's not very patriotic. Uh, certainly, uh, like a boy who would grow up uh, avoiding this loophole is, uh, in a way, I personally think, uh, you know, exempt from this that his classmates would have to be uh, serving. But uh, that just, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me. I'm oh, against conscription, you know, but I'm against these exceptions also. Well, the thing is, it's an exception that is fair because, you know, it's, you know, you're giving your kid a chance. It's, I think, about a parental duty to give your kid the full range of options. And I think as, you know, as Korean parents are, um, you know, they are, they tend to want to give their kid those kind of options. I think, you know, if you have the chance to give your kid the option not to have to serve um, or, you know, some other direction in life, I think Koreans feel that, you know, I have to make every effort within the range of what I can possibly do financially um, to give my kid the option. Now, the thing is, that, that kid doesn't necessarily have to take the option later, but you, at least you have 
I mean, American citizenship is a really powerful thing to yeah, have. Yeah, but Michael, I know one guy, and I know plenty of people who were on the other side. I know one person who didn't have to serve in the Korean military, but chose to serve in the in the Korean military. Like he had an option to get out of it. I know one single person, and I know that's just anecdotal. But the vast majority of people, I don't think, are thinking, "Oh, which option should I take?" It's pretty clear which option they're going to take: not serve in the military. Yeah, especially yeah, when it's when it's two that, years long, it's a really long time. True. However, I think that's mostly because of the um, kind of public shaming and you know, Korean society. You know, whatever it has to do shuts down other options for you socially if you haven't served in the military, and that's you know something you just have to weigh. But I think I think American citizenship is seen as a positive enough of a good for people to pay for. Obviously, people are doing it. But if you're like a, a Korean kid living in Korea, you speak Korean, you don't speak English, and you go to a regular school, uh, you just happen to have American citizenship. What's, what's the difference between you and the kid sitting next to you in school? I don't get it. Yeah, there, there really is no difference. Not, not, not at all. Where you're born physically really shouldn't determine your nationality alone. I, I'm sorry. I mean, I hate to, 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 to try to play devil's advocate here, but I don't understand why America has to be so different from other countries, like Soren just pointed well, out. No, but this is the history, and it's actually a great history. Sure, I mean, it's I- the history, but, but histories change. Not, not everything has to be the way that it was. Korea used to be a dictatorship. Korea used to be a unified peninsula. Things change, and the idea of not changing something just because it's the way it's been in itself is not a great argument. You're conflating arguments here. I think you have to look at the United States, which has its own set of interests, and Korea is not one of the major interests. Sure. sure. What we're talking about in the 14th Amendment, I think the United States has one of the most liberal and, frankly, best policies about who can become a citizen. I mean, it's you're born on American soil. You know, this one of the reasons that this is, I think, seen as a positive good. I think one sign of this is that even though this is a contested area right now, a contested policy, it's the 14th Amendment, and um, you know, it's seen as a positive good that this is what helped build. You know, the American character, American population. I don't think we have conversations yet about, you know, canceling the 14th Amendment because I think people don't want to go there quite yet. But we do know that there are people who are kind of abusing this, what is generally considered to be a good thing for American society. It's, I think, Korean society has its own set of issues to work out in terms of power, access to power, and um, American, American citizenship is something that's historically played a big role. And if there are... Exactly. And, and, I, and I actually think America is profiting a lot from that. I mean, Koreans are so well-educated. They, they, uh, they fit in very well into the workforce of the United States. And, and this is, this is the, the fundament of the, of, the, uh, of the U.S. society, basically, that it's an immigrant country and that, and that everybody who's born there is, is basically welcome to stay and work and, and contribute. And, and most of the, uh, and the Korean, Korean Americans, are, I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're very, very educated and, and they, and they contribute very much to that society. I think it's a, it's a, it's a win-win actually in that, in that context. Well, the weird thing about American law, sure. It's great that like, if you're born in America, it doesn't matter who your parents are. You're American. If you're born overseas to American parents, then you're not a full American ever. Like you could never run for president. Well, well, it depends. It, uh, for instance, Sean McCain. Well, yeah, I mean, with yeah, exceptions yeah, yeah. like McCain and stuff. I mean, if you're born to American parents like I was, um, you know, I would have problems becoming president because 
American politics is stupid. Like, look at what happened. <laughs> but I don't think that's a problem of the laws. I mean, I was, I have naturalization papers, but my father is an Amer- American citizen. I was born in an American military base in Germany, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> so I think in reality, if I tried to run for president, I wouldn't win anyway. But um, I think the question of whether I really was an American would come up, even though it's clear that I, that I am. And um, recent changes, you know, for example, after 9-11 with security and whatnot, I'm not in the – when I applied for financial aid for my FAFSA, um, I'm not in the database of Americans by birth because I happen to have been – I have naturalization papers because my mom wanted me to go to, through the ceremony with her together. So she just had me have a naturalization ceremony, which I didn't need, but it was just for fun. I'm like, thanks, mom. Now I can't be president. So. See, but Michael, that's that's the thing that I that I am trying to point out. I'm for. I think someone like you should be viewed as a complete 100 percent American, whatever that means. You know, just the same as me, who I was born in America to American parents, but someone who was physically born in America and then moved somewhere else and has no connection to the country but has a passport. Those are the type of people who I think should be more in your situation where they're they're a naturalized citizen or maybe they have some sort of, you know, other thing. But I don't think American citizenship should be handed out just because you were born in a hospital or in an apartment building in the U.S. I, I, I completely agree with your situation, Michael. You are just as American as me as any or anyone else. What I'm saying is, legally speaking, I am the same, but in practical terms, because of new policies, new laws. It, beca- it comes in the question because the media is dumb. You know, look what happened to the birthers and Obama, right? He's an American citizen. There's no question about that. They just tried to turn this into an issue. It's a non-issue. I think, I, I think the 14th Amendment is fine as something that doesn't need to be fucked with. It's worked well for America. I think right now we're going through one of those brief moments of panic over smaller political issues. But this is why we don't change the amendments every other. Okay, so then just real quick to wrap up the conversation in the interest of time, if we're not going to change any of the laws, how do we fix the fact that people are taking advantage of it? Is there anything you can do or do you just, you know, try to catch them at the border and just hope for the best? I think that if you, you've got, I basically think you've got a group of people who are trying to abuse what is, I think a beautiful right. And um, you've got businesses designed to have people be, you know, birthed on purpose um, in the US. I think those businesses should be dealt with. I don't know what legal, on what legal basis. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, I don't work for the Justice Department, but I'm sure there's some kind of legal way to address this issue in terms of the, the industries that have grown up around the abuse of this right. But I don't think that the 14th Amendment needs to be attacked. And even in the most, I think the most reasonable Republicans who are talking about this, saber-rattling about this, aren't really talking about repealing the 14th Amendment. Because that's the basis of citizenship, but also the basis of equal protection of the laws. And once you start fucking around with that, then a lot of things go out the window. Well, I agree. There's a possibility, but just because you change the birthright citizenship does not mean everything else has to change. I guess that, that would be the final point that I, I would make. You could adjust one specific part without changing others, but you do open a can of worms 
to that general idea. That is true. Um, let's move on to our next topic. But first, Soren, um, before we do that, Soren, we actually met on a government-sponsored tour for journalists here in South Korea. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of journalism you're doing here? And also, you're working on a book about Korea. Yeah, it's true. So I came, I came to Korea two years ago um, with, a, with a fellowship from a German uh, organization that, that sponsors journalists to go to Asia. And I picked Korea because I, I, you know, I knew Korean movies, I knew Korean culture a bit, so I wanted to, to live in Korea for a while. And it really worked out because I actually, uh, when I came here, I found out that there's uh, virtually no German journalist in, in the whole country. There's one from, for a wired service, and that's it. Um, and so I was, I was able to, to send some stories home. I was by then even able to go to North Korea for a week. And uh, I wrote a big article, like my longest ever, basically, four pages on that. And a book publishing house read this article, and they wanted me to write a book about, uh, about South Korea. And so, and maybe about North Korea as well, like, you know, uh, about North Koreans in South Korea and so on. And I'm, uh, and I agreed about like three months ago. And, uh, so I came to Korea a year ago again to, to write articles and to start researching for the book. And then finally, yeah, I agreed on the book contract. And now, now I'm, now I'm traveling the country basically and, uh, interviewing people everywhere and trying to, you know, uh, grasp Korean culture, Korean history, uh, yeah, in, 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 those, um, in those pages. I interviewed a Korean uh, poet, a very old guy in Seoul last week, um, and I'm now in Jeju, actually, and uh, just rented a car yesterday, and we'll go around the island for a week and interview some people and see some hopefully nice scenery if the rain stops at one point. Oof. John, you and I, we got to write a book about Korea. That sounds awesome. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yeah, I haven't made it to, to Jeju yet, but I've heard only just wonderful things. So I hope you enjoy the, the time that you have there before you come back to Seoul. Yes, um, it's really nice. Moving on now to our final topic, very much so less intense than what we've talked about before, but one that is very near and dear to my own heart, and that is busking, playing music on the street here in Seoul. Um, as I mentioned, I lived here about five years ago. Uh, I was here for less than a year before I left South Korea to join the Peace Corps. Spent about two years in Columbia, then came crawling back to Korea. And before I left, I started playing music on the street in Hongdae because I had some extra time and I wanted to be in a band. And, you know, I had some percussion and it was it was one of the greatest experiences I had here before I came back. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to come back because I had such a great time and met so many great um, people. I would play mostly with Korean musicians every Friday and Saturday night because at that time, um, there weren't a lot of people busking, and for the most part, from what I saw, I was pretty much the only Western foreigner that was doing it. Um, flash forward now, uh, in the last two years, busking has gotten so intense in Hongdae that most nights it's even hard to find a spot to play in. Um, I've seen a few other foreigners from time to time, but it still seems mostly to be Koreans participating in this activity, um, with groups setting up in front of subway exits, you know, in parks in front of businesses, or even just in the street. They'll block traffic, and there'll just be so many people, the traffic sort of has to deal with it. And despite these huge crowds and driving everyone to Hongdae every weekend, people are starting to get a little pissed off. Um, as the Korea Times now reports that buskers are causing quite a dilemma for the Mapo District office because it supports street performances for tourist purposes, but they also have to deal with noise complaints from residents and business owners in the area. Residents complain they can't sleep at night because of the noise. Some business owners say the noise in the crowds block the entrances to their shops. And so people have now started to ask for the office to ban busking. 
So in response to these complaints, the Mapo District Office put up signs near the busking area saying performances were banned between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. And if they violate that, they could be fined. But of course, no one cared. Everyone kept playing. The busking continued. I was there last night. Tons of busking. And what ends up happening is the police officers will show up when there's a complaint. They'll be very nice. They'll tell you to turn down the volume or just move somewhere else. Uh, I've been on the receiving end of this multiple times, but... I got to tell you, while they are very nice about it, at the same time, when myself and other fellow obvious Westerners are busking in Hongdae, we'll be playing right next to one or two Korean bands, but the police will tell us to leave, and they won't even talk to the Korean bands. And it got to the point that I would ask them in the little bit of Korean that I had, you know, what about these Korean bands? Do they need to leave as well? And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should ask the Korean bands to leave. But I stopped doing that because even though I thought it was fair, I didn't want to, you know, ruin the party for everyone else. But that is what it is. It's, it's mostly a Korean thing. As I mentioned, there are a few foreigners that do it as well. Um, but what do you guys think about all this? Uh, Hongdae is obviously a very important area. It's the most popular music scene in the entire country. And is this a price they have to pay to keep that title, to, to keep those buskers? Or should people like myself and other musicians, you know, suck it up, follow the law, and just play a show at Club Freebird in Hongdae like everyone else does? What do you guys think about this? I actually chose Hongdae uh, uh, to to write about, and only uh, I, I only wrote about the music scene in Hongdae actually. And I interviewed some some buskers that made it to the to the K-pop culture, and that's uh, yeah. And and I think that's also like the biggest compliment to that to that neighborhood that they like ten years later are still talking about their busking times and still talking about the the uh, that they're still walking the streets sometimes to to get the feeling how it how it used to be in 2007 when like yojo i interviewed yojo uh, a singer who who um was singing the title song of of coffee prince that that tv show uh, that made her famous and she started in and on the streets of hongdae she was hongdae yoshi she told me like a hongdae princess in 2007 um so they have this voting going on every year and and uh, yeah, she still she still remembers those times very dearly, and and uh, like I think this is the starting point for many for many Koreans. So I think they should find a regulation, uh, but but you know deal with it in a way and 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 not destroy it. Well, the the problem uh, with with busking really is like the the Korean uh, the Hongdae music scene is not very rich at all. Uh, and a lot of those people, you know, have to go to Hongdae for practice spaces. They have to go there for, uh, venues where they can play and actually try to make money, which they rarely do. And what we've seen in the last few years with this increase of buskers is just like so many more acts coming and so less quality. So it can be much more difficult for an actual band that's playing music to actually, uh, you know, be heard because of that. Like why go in and pay for, uh, 10,000 or 15,001 door fee, and you can just see something in the street. And uh, I think, actually, what we might want to look at uh, for the future is what happened in uh, Hongdae Playground, where they had, uh, a few years ago, it was just, it was a jungle, like every uh, weekend night. There'd be all the, always the same acts setting up. There'd be one band that would play the same covers every week. There were, uh, there would be the silent raves and things like that, which probably were making money by selling their headsets or something. And all sorts of acts like that, and nobody else could go in. So the the local government, as far as I understand, set it up so that you have to register and pay to play there. And instantly all those bands disappeared. And some of the musicians who actually wanted to put money in and put on something good started uh, doing shows there again. Uh, They don't do it very often anymore, and the park's kind of dead, but, you know, 
um, maybe that's what has to be done is like more of a system in place. So it's not being dominated by the same acts all the time. Yeah. Is that something? Cause I, I've pretty much only bust. Uh, I did it a little bit when I was in college in Boston and, um, I'm sure there are like permits you have to have, but I just did it. But, um, in other major cities, I think you're like a registered performer. You have like an ID or you have to, um, like register with city hall or something like that. I've, I've seen when yeah. I worked in Los Angeles, um, when they have people standing on the streets who look like Gene Simmons or Batman or the Joker, they're like <laughs> card carrying members. They have an ID. Um, you know, it's all, it's all run. There's, there's structure there. Definitely. That would help. Uh, at the very least, if you're using electricity, you better be paying somebody. Well, I think the um, problem in Hongdae is Hongdae has always been on the cusp of really quick cultural social changes. And uh, we have to remember that it wasn't all that long ago when the, when the city government was trying to illegalize Hongdae, Hongdae clubs. Well, yeah. it was illegal up until 2000 anyway. Yeah, and then when Hongdae clubs actually started to become a major draw, not just for Korean locals, but also for tourists, you remember um, the first implementation of Club Day? The, go- the city government was actively trying to shut down um, what they were calling illegal um, clubs through the um, application of local um, liquor license laws and oh, yeah. restrictions. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah I. But, you know, before the particular kind of small nightclub started to exist in in Hongdae specifically, um, Shinchon was also one of those places. There wasn't much of a problem. And I think, you know, there's always been street performers here and there in Korean culture. um, And uh, they've, I think, always sort of floated under the radar. But now that Hongdae has become a major destination for that sort of thing, um, it's become a part of the the landscape of the area, it's become an issue. And I think then you got the standard Korean problem of um, the unequal application of regulations. And, you know, this is an area, many like many in Korean society, where the rule of law hasn't always been present. And uh, now suddenly there are reasons to um, enforce certain new, certain laws and regulations and I think it becomes a weapon between people with power and people who don't have it. So the residents and local businesses, they complain because of this supposed 60 decibel um, noise limit. But um, the real problem is noise regulations aren't enforced anywhere in the city that I know about. Yeah, businesses will blast music uh, at, at all times or someone will pull up with a truck. And just blast some message. Yeah, it happens all the time. If these regulations were actually actually meant anything, they would be applied all the time. I myself, you know, I'm not a usual normal person. I've walked around parts of the city with a decibel meter, uh, oh. just to um, you know, because I make certain points about um, unequal application of this law, and I'll stand and I'll sit next to um, you know the Paris baguette girl in a short skirt dancing wildly to strange k-pop to promote bread and uh it's loud enough that my eardrums actually hurt so i brought a decibel meter just to figure out how much that's well over 60 decibels and the fact is nobody complains because it's just accepted that's what happens but and it's also not after 10 o'clock at night i think i think i totally agree with you michael on the on the rule of law and on the uh 
on the on the issue that that those laws have to be enforced. Um, but I have actually been in Hongdae. I think it was a weeknight, and uh, and I was there at like nine thirty, nine forty five, and they actually all stopped at ten o'clock. And I was like, oh, okay, so it is stopping. At least that night, I was. Uh, but I also read. I was gonna say that might that might have been a different night. Um, yeah, it's. I would say that there there are plenty of people after ten o'clock usually. Yeah, maybe on, on on the weekends definitely. But I think like if you if you once like you know it's it's like it's like the smoking ban. Like if you really uh, if you really start to enforce it for a couple of weeks, then people are just getting used to it, and they and. Soren, that that's a great example. I I thought I thought the smoking ban at first was a little rough um, because you know culturally here everyone smoked, or whether or not that's kind of a cop out, just more or less everyone smoked here. But I think Korea has done a great job exactly. with the smoking exactly. ban, raising the prices. It's so nice to not sit next to people smoking all the time. Well, I stopped smoking is- here. I stopped smoking here uh, because because it was really easier than stopping smoking in Berlin. It was. Well, just nobody smokes in the in out in the open anymore, and uh, so that that actually helps. And like they 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 can enforce the laws. So like why why not why not being being a little bit rigid uh, on that and and you know make make it make it more fun to people actually live there and and you know not call the police all the time. So once again, sorry we we just had a lot of discussion today. In the interest of time, let's try to wrap this up. If we all agree that if laws are going to be laws, they should be enforced. What is a realistic fair? rule that they could put out in Hongdae. Maybe everyone needs to have some kind of ID or like register with the office. And then I think personally, I think 10 o'clock is a little early. Could we make it midnight? Could we make it 1130? What what are reasonable rules here? Well, well it should be different uh, times in different places. Like the playground can stay open all night. It does anyways. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael. The one problem here is that um, I think, you know, make laws and force them sort of like the stop line law because, you know, a lot of people don't remember that generally it was unsafe to cross the street at a crosswalk in, in Seoul because you could be killed. And um, generally it would be dumb to try to just follow the lights. But then I think it was about 2004 or five, something like that. They had the stop line campaign where they had cops out monitoring, monitoring um, the stop line, the um, crosswalk areas where the cars had to stop and uh, with cameras and and charging people very, very strictly um, and uh, without exception, some like a two hundred dollar fine or something for going an inch over the stop line. I've and never gotten that. I go over oh, the stop line yeah. all the time. I think I think I think they sh- they should do that again. Actually, That's yeah, I, I I say Michael, if if that happened, please God bring that back because I cannot <laughs> well, tell you how many times I've almost yes. been hit in a crosswalk. I think it I think it worked, and um, you know there because I. I remember coming to Seoul in 2002, and uh, I wouldn't dare go into the crosswalk based on the the light changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Make sure that there was no car coming at me because generally people didn't. Generally, did even as a driver in 2002, I had to deal with the fact that if I stopped at a red light, sometimes cars would get angry at me. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, people just didn't really follow the lights very much. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. I think you're really showing your your depth of knowledge about Korea because uh, some of the things that I complain about Korea are things that have gotten so much better. So yeah, even though I still think it's very unsafe on the roads here in Korea, I agree with you. It's probably much better than it was. I think you were saying 2002. So all right, let's so let's wrap this up. I'm, I'm sorry, I wish we had more time. This is a great topic, but yeah, let, let's have laws in Hongdae that are fair to businesses and also to people performing on the street. But let's have accountability. Let's have people following the laws, and if they don't like it. 
I love Shinshan. I, I go to school near Shinshan now. Maybe they can move to Shinshan, and if Shinshan is a little bit more open to people respectfully playing music, maybe people can just make you know the fifteen minute walk to Shinshan. So, or or just check out Mule Mule. That's where all the uh, Hongdae musicians are moving. It's just uh, one stop north of Shindorim on the other side of the river. It's uh, there's a, a, a slowly dying. Uh, mechanic shop uh, area and every time a shop closes it's replaced with an art gallery or a live music venue so a lot of a lot of Hongdae musicians have totally given up on Hongdae oh you, you said Mule yeah. yeah Mule oh okay I, I misunderstood that okay yeah Mule yeah I've, I've played a show there yeah that I, by all means I, I think Hongdae is, is is over and done with let's find a new spot let's go to Mule <laughs> let's go to Shinshan uh, real quick before we finish John uh, as I mentioned, you're a permanent resident here in Korea. Could you talk a little bit about the magic that allowed that to happen, and also talk about all the Korean urban exploring, er, uh, all the Korean urban exploring that you do? Uh, well, it's not really magic. I was married for a few years. I managed to upgrade my uh, F2 to an F5 uh, before uh, legally divorcing. So, as you explained to me once, because you're a permanent resident, if you married another foreigner, they would then get an F visa. Oh, yeah. I got to be careful when I say that around uh, Chinese exchange students because it really opens their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, oh, man. I'm so jealous of you. Good for you, man. But OK, so that's that's your visa situation. You, you won the good battle. Uh, talk about all this urban exploring. You're the you're the urban exploring guy. Maybe I'm maybe not including enough information there, but you are the guy when it comes to urban exploring in my mind. Yeah, well, just because I've been doing it for a really, really long time and keeping track of it after. Uh, let's see, I guess I. I first did it in 2005, but started doing it like weekly in 2007. And after about, I don't know, three or four years, I just started to realize my knowledge about the city was rivaling, uh, you know, most other people who are, you know, residents of Seoul. So I can look at an area and tell you what was there before. And uh, that's about it. You know, I've been uh, getting a lot more interested in urban policy through it, uh, which is a pretty strange route to take, I guess. But the, the great thing about urban exploring in Seoul versus like where I come from uh, outside Des Moines, Iowa, we're sure you could find like some abandoned things here and there, but more or less they just knock stuff down or, or they build it up and it, it you know moves along so they keep using it. But correct me if I'm wrong, Seoul and Korea in general has amazing like abandoned urban landscape. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's how the uh, high rise mega complexes get built. They abandon an entire area all at once and then they take a couple of years to knock everything down. And it actually can be a lot longer from, you know, eviction to new buildings opening. So uh, there's, there's quite a chance to just go around and, uh, you know, walk through an area where there are no people and see what that's like. And we'll leave it at that. I know there, there are much more interesting stories to be told, but <laughs> there are. since we know your name is John Dunbar, we'll leave it at that. Fun things to be had with urban exploration. So once again, a big thank you to Michael Hurt, Soren Kittle, and of course, John Dunbar, the man we just heard for joining us today on This Week Korea. You can subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store with your favorite Android application or by visiting koreafm.net. Thank you, everybody. And for koreafm.net, I'm Chance Dorland. <laughs>